Hi, it's Damien Christoph here. Are you ready to take your life to the most incredible level possible in 2016? Well, we've had three sold out wellness summits these last few years, but honestly, nothing comes close to the wellness breakthrough and we have just three spots remaining. Your favorite wellness couch experts, the wellness guys, Karen Smith, Kim Morrison, Quirky Cookings, Joe Witten, Marcus Pierce, and of course, Carl Brock are gathering in the Dandenong Ranges for three days and two nights for one incredible event. If you want possibly the greatest peer group in health and wellness to help you catapult your life to the next level, then we'd love to see you at the Wellness Breakthrough from February 5th to the 7th. But again, there's only three spots available. Entry to the breakthrough is by application only, and to apply, simply email your contact details to marcus at thewellnesscouch.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show, we are again joined by Dr. Phil Maffetone. As you know, Phil is an internationally recognized expert on health, nutrition, and human performance. We had a great chat with Phil back on episode 45, but today Phil and I are going to cover all things death by dietary guidelines and the day low-fat diet. Hi, Phil, and welcome to the show. Hello, Steph. So great to be with you again. Awesome. I'd love you to start by um, giving us a little bit of an update, actually. Last time we spoke, you were sharing with us your app that's in the development stage. Can you share with us uh, where things are at now and how it's progressing? Sure. Uh, the MAF app uh, has just completed uh, its, its uh, second beta tester, beta testing phase, and we've gotten back all the responses and uh, everything was really, really good. And so uh, we are about to meet again to um, plan the app, kind of correct some of the little problems, uh, uh, add some other things that we wanted to add and didn't get a chance last time and so on and so forth. And that should be released to the public uh, soon. I, I, I hate to just say soon, but I'm I'm hoping in the next month or so uh, you can you can keep up via the website. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that that becomes available quickly, and then we will be continuing to develop uh, an app that will be even more uh, will just be better. Mm. Uh, Better for the athletes, ways of uh, measuring and testing things, uh, dietary things, and so forth. The current app um, includes a lot of that stuff now, so it's uh, it's really been uh, quite a, a journey and a lot of fun. And we've got something quite unique, so um, I'm looking forward to continuing the process. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are going to get their hands on that when it's available to download. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. So I think it was late last year you wrote an article, or was it this year? You wrote an article um, titled The Day Low-Fat Died. Now, I saw it um, quite a number of times shared on social media through clients of mine and and certainly um, other health professionals. And it seems like it's quite popular as well. There's a, a number of comments on your website that people have um, applauded the article. Um, I wanted you to start with a little bit of information about this article and if you could share to start about the um, the Journal of American Medical Association and what they have printed. Yeah, you know, I, I when I got the idea for that, I was reading JAMA and I, I was reading, um, um, and now I don't, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's he's uh, 
uh, the chair at at Tufts uh, at Tufts. The, he's the chair of the nutrition. Um, uh, sorry, can't remember even his title. Let so me. I've got it here. He's, he's the dean Good. of Tufts University Friedman School of Nutrition. His name Good. looks very um, difficult to pronounce, but it's Dr. Oh, Darish. I was hoping you were going to try. <laughs> Dr. Darish <laughs> Mozaafarian. <laughs> that was probably terrible. Yeah. I apologize. You'll be hearing. You'll be hearing from him. <laughs> yes, and he w- and he wrote a, a very uh, interesting and uh, well written piece in JAMA, where he said, um, "We we no longer see fat as being the evil it was said to be for all those not just years, decades, um, and we should." You know, we should see fat as our friend, and we should shout it from the rooftops, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought it was a little funny. I thought it was interesting. I was glad to see it. I was a little disturbed by it because there were a number of us shouting that from the rooftops back in the 70s and 80s, and we were considered quacks, Um and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that there's an acceptance, especially with cholesterol, because that was, you know, of, of all the fats, that was the worst fat. Even thinking about cholesterol was supposed to raise your heart disease risk. You know, it was just terrible information, uh, not based on science, certainly not based on uh, the clinical world in terms of what we would see in patients, uh, for example, those who ate well and consumed a, a lot of eggs like I did, uh, did not have any cholesterol problems, did not have any risk factors for, for heart disease, any high ri- moderate or high risk factors. So um, it was good to see this. And then I thought about writing this article, The Day Low Fat Died, and I thought, no, nah, that's kind of silly. And... Um, and I started taking some notes, um, thinking uh, you know it would become a different article, and it turned out to be what what you see there. And I think it came out in the last um, two or th- two or three weeks. I don't, you know, I write these articles, and um, they go through uh, an editor, and then eventually get posted on the website. So I don't remember when they when they come out. But there's sort of a companion article that also just came out, which which is on the it's a play off the current U.S. dietary guidelines, which are not much different than the dietary guidelines that most governments recommend. And, um, and I talk about what would happen if I was to follow those dietary guidelines. And it was a, it was a gruesome article to write because as I went on, and I, I said, well, if I started consuming that food after a month or after two months, this is what would happen to me and I'd feel bad and this would, you know, my, my blood sugar, my insulin, my triglycerides, my blood pressure would go up. And after a year, I was, you know, I was really, really sick. And it was a little painful to write that, but it was sort of a companion to the day low fat died. Um, the fact is, even though they're, recommending or they're they're not not recommending they're not recommending to avoid fat they're still recommending too much junk food um and fat is still you know people have this we've all grown up with the idea that fat has a lot of calories and calories are bad and we should avoid it and it's a really tough thing to break out of mentally and you'll catch yourself, you know, everyone who's listening, many, I know, because of your teaching, I know people are eating in a way that's healthy where they're not eating a lot of carbohydrates, they're not eating refined carbohydrates, they're eating more healthy fats. But when you're in the store looking at something, you're, you're going to have that little thing in your brain that, you know, we all were exposed to at a younger age which has a negative connotation about fat and we have to sort of catch ourselves um, often and, and um, it's going to take a while to get rid of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned in your article, no one really agrees on the um, exact birth date of low fat, but we think it might have began as far back as 1939 with the rice diet that became quite yeah. popular. Right. That seemed to be the point when uh, calories in, calories out as a theory, it's a very bad theory, um, and it's still around. It's still a very bad theory, but it, that seems to be when calories and low-calorie diets also um, started becoming popular. The rice diet was, you know, was the seemed to be the trigger. Um, so that was the, you know, we we wanted to have a. Uh, my idea was to have a um, a gravestone that we could we can show, and so we needed a, a you know. When was low fat born? Here's when it died. When was it born? So we put uh, 1939, and um, that was cute. Yeah, I'll share the link to the actual article in the show notes so everyone can go and check out that image. But it's obviously been a huge evolution over those decades. Um, But, I mean, share with us what you've seen in in terms of trends. I know you've been shouting from the rooftops – for a long time, but do you find it easier now that the the conversation's a lot louder? And and what have the trends been that you've seen, say, with conversations even with clients? Well, I, it's it's interesting um, to look at those trends. Um, many of them are still with us. Uh, on the bad side, we still have a diet trend. Mm. People are still looking. Even the even the current um, the World Health Organization guidelines, the U.S. Uh, dietary guidelines, everything is still diet oriented. And when you when you look at all the articles that are out there about low carbohydrate, high fat, um, ketogenic, paleo, it, the the emphasis seems to be in most cases on on a diet, you know, I'm on a low fat, uh, I'm on a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, or I'm on a low fat diet, I'm on a, you know, a ketogenic diet, I'm on a paleo diet. Um, Paleo diet is the most silly phrase because uh, that was never, uh, that was never the intention of of that. Um, it, It, you know, it was the way our ancestors ate. And it's not unusual for me to get a question if I'm out lecturing uh, about what kind of diet I'm on. Not on any diet I eat because, uh, you know, these foods make me feel the best. And uh, it doesn't matter exactly how many grams of carbohydrates and fats and proteins I eat because uh, it doesn't apply to anybody else. It only applies to me. And so, and I've never... I've never jumped on the diet bandwagon. I've, I've tried to discourage it, but that trend is still is still out there. Um, and so, even though we've we've uh, we've we've witnessed the death of of low fat, it, the 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 diet trend is still there, and and it was attached to low fat for all those years, the low fat diet, the low cholesterol diet. Um, so we've lost the low fat part, but we still have the diet part, which is a problem. Uh, diets are things that um, you follow blindly because that's what the diet is. You have one cup of this, you have you know, 20 grams of that. Um, I, what I've always tried to do is help people understand how to eat for their needs. Every, every animal on earth that's not in captivity knows how to eat except for humans. We, you know, we've been, we've been beat up by the, the media and by all of these unhealthy trends. And so, um, as, as natural human beings, it's like we, we've lost our ability to go out and eat food that, that is, is the best food for our bodies. And that's really sad. So, that trend is still there, and, and that needs to change. And I think it's good that people are uh, looking at so-called low-carbohydrate, high-fat eating. But again, the, the word diet is always at the end of that phrase, and it's, 
And, and it's really not even low carbohydrate, high fat. It's appropriate carbohydrate and appropriate fat. So why even call it anything? It's it's how humans eat, uh, and the 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 specifics about how much carbohydrate and how much protein, how much fat is going to vary from person to person, which is exactly what happens in the wild with, with animals. They, they eat what their instincts and intuition tells them to eat, and, and we should do the same. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, even what you mentioned about the term the paleo diet, it, it totally comes back to media and I think the virtual world that we live in. I mean, we could all assume that you know, even Cordain wouldn't have made much money on, on the paleo diet on his book if it wasn't commercialized as such. Right, right. And, and Rob Wolf never, has never called it a diet. I, mm. I mean, I love Rob's approach mm. because he, he's, he's quite, um, we certainly anti-diet, but I, I think it's that he doesn't even mention it. Maybe, he's, maybe he says it's not a diet, but, you know, his, his, um, his attitude about it is that it's a, a way of, of eating. It's how our ancestors ate and it's how we should eat. And I, I've lived my, pretty much my whole adult life thinking the same. Yeah. So I wanted to break down a few points just for our listeners that might not um, be on exactly the same page. Let's start with the calories in, calories out um, approach because that's I think still everywhere I mean we saw Oprah do a multi-billion dollar deal with Weight Watchers and um, you know I guess basically continue to encourage calorie counting as a form of weight loss to the masses and I was extremely Mm. disappointed to see that happening in 2015-2016 when we've spent the last five years or more really trying to drop the calorie counting, low fat, um, and I know you've been doing it for, for far longer than that, um, but share with us, I guess, why that calorie fallacy is incorrect um, and certainly how it's not an effective um, way to get rid of excess body fat. Sure. It's, a, it's an interesting discussion. Um... Uh, the idea of calories in, calories out on paper is something we've all learned in physiology and in school, various classes, um, uh, certainly today in, in any nutrition program, you're going to learn that. Um, uh, and it's a very mechanistic uh, view. It's a, it's a reductionist view rather than a holistic view. Uh, we can we can look at the human body in a reductionist way. We can say, well, um, uh, here's the pancreas, and here's the liver, and here's the small intestine, and here's the brain. You know, and this organ does that, and this gland does does this. Um, but it doesn't work that way. We we have a body that works in an in an amazing way we we don't know a whole lot about how the body works uh despite having knowledge of uh, just an incredibly vast knowledge especially in the last 20 years but um the problem with calories in calories out the the fact that we clinically know it doesn't work the fact that uh studies have shown that people who go on those diets end up gaining their weight back and a high percent end up gaining more than they lost is quite telling. Um, and the reason they would, they would gain more weight than they lost is because their metabolism was injured in the process of following a low-fat diet. And that's really the, um, the answer to the question, why doesn't calories in, calories out work? Because we don't consider metabolism. We just consider the numbers of, of calories that we eat and the expenditure of calories in the form of, um, of movement, for example. Although just sleeping burns calories. Um, the more detail about it is that we don't just burn calories. We burn calories of fat and calories of sugar. Yeah. And so when we consume something, a specific kind of meal that's made up of different carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, and so forth. Um, the real question 
and and the 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 ultimately the answer to the to the you know why why doesn't calories in calories out work is that food affects our metabolism and different foods affect our metabolism different ways and so what we want to do with our diet is burn more body fat we don't i mean we do care about calories um but i've never paid any attention to them and i've done rather well with with the patients that i've worked with um uh i want to know what does this meal do to your metabolism do you end up burning more fat as a result of eating that meal or do you end up burning more sugar and less fat and then when you go out to exercise um, and you count the calories that, that you, you burn during that exercise, um, you know, knowing that you burned X amount of calories is not as important as knowing that you burn this much fat and that much carbohydrate. You, you want to make your body into a healthy fat-burning machine. That's, that's the bottom line. That's what, that's what the human body is supposed to do. And if, if we're not doing that, then we're storing more fat, and when we when we follow a, a low calorie diet, we impair our metabolism and we burn less fat and we store more. And that's why people who are on those diets quite often gain more weight in the long run than the amount of weight they lost. Yeah, absolutely. I like to teach that it is that certainly the metabolic impact, and of course hormonal. We know that. When you're following a low-fat diet that's you know, going to be higher in carbohydrates, your insulin's being spiked, which is what creates that sugar-burning environment and certainly turns off the fat-burning. So right. we're looking at the physiology, as you say, rather than it, be, it being a simple matter of eat less, move more. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I should add that, that um, you mentioned insulin spiking and uh, uh, and that whole idea of consuming carbohydrates, producing uh, insulin above the level that's that's healthy, it's possible for young, healthy individuals to consume the kinds of meals that are around now and actually produce too much insulin. A, a lot of times when you mention that to people, that you know you eat too much carbohydrate and your insulin spikes, they say or they think, well, not in me because I'm not diabetic or I'm not insulin resistant yeah. or I don't have, you know, I don't have any of those metabolic problems. Well, they they showed, I, I think the first time I read it was a study in 1983 and they were using young, healthy college students and they fed them a lot of junk and they overproduced insulin. So um, we've known that refined carbohydrates are that powerful mm. and certainly as as refined carbohydrate intake uh really started going up back in the depending on the studies you want to look at certainly back in the 70s into the 80s um the obesity epidemic the overfat epidemic the diabetes epidemic uh chronic disease uh, risks, risk of chronic disease, all those things started going up with it. And, um, and it's interesting that there are some studies that are showing that recently our, as, as a population, our carbohydrate consumption has actually been reduced. And um, the problem, and, and, and you'll hear this, you'll hear uh, sugar industry People, carbohydrate industry people saying, look, the, the carbohydrate intake has actually been going down, so the obesity epidemic is not our fault. Well, not quite, not so fast. Um, what's happened is people have become much more insulin resistant. Many have become diabetic, in fact, but people have become much more insulin resistant, and there's a genetic component. This has affected our genes. So now, we're seeing children who are more susceptible to insulin resistant and diabetes uh, because of what their parents did and now what their grandparents did. And so even though carbohydrate intake as a population has gone down, we're still seeing the obesity epidemic, the overfat, diabetes, chronic disease epidemic, they're still continuing to rise because people have become actually more insulin resistant 
And here's, here's really the bottom line, is it takes less junk food to trigger that insulin in many people uh, compared to when they were younger. That's one of the problems with insulin resistance. It just keeps getting worse. So you, you don't have to eat as much refined carbohydrate compared to 10 years ago or whatever to produce the same over amount of insulin. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much I want to break down there. Um, I think certainly when uh, we discuss that subset of the population, you know, like younger people, um, I think one of the one of the stories they tell themselves is, you know, they're lean, so they're fine. Whereas when you start to explain the effect of insulin in terms of that insatiable hunger, the energy mm-hmm. energy slumps, the cravings, suddenly they start to actually relate that food intake to what they're experiencing. Yep. And as you know, when you get someone to eat more fats and they can get fantastic satiety and their energy stays stable and their cravings are controlled, their experience is obviously the complete obvi- um, opposite. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's a great place for people to focus on perhaps what they're experiencing now versus what's possible when they eat real food that's naturally higher in fat. Right. Good, good points. You know, p- people should not rely on any governmental dietary recommendations, you know, or, or World Health Organization recommendations. Um, they, they shouldn't allow, in the U.S., uh, uh, they shouldn't allow insurance companies to dictate uh, what kinds of doctors they see to get nutrition advice, for example, um, and, and so on and so forth. And in many cases, and it's really, really sad, but it, the fact is in many cases uh, people don't have anywhere to go. They should be able to go to their doctor and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm overweight, I'm tired, I'm hungry all the time. What should I do? And unfortunately for most people, if they were to do that, the doctor would either say, I don't know, or have some off-the-shelf diet that they're, they're put on. Um, and that means we need to take responsibility for our, our own health, all of us. Um, it's what I've always done. Now, you might get some assistance from a health practitioner uh, you might find that a diet analysis is very helpful. You, you know, you've got, you're going to go on this journey and you've got to learn how to eat. And uh, it, it, it may mean uh, getting some help from, from some professionals. So, um, but people need to, you know, if, 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 you're, if your plumbing gets all messed up in your home uh, and you're not good at fixing that stuff, you're going to hire a plumber, but you're going to oversee the plumber's work. Uh, even though the plumber is the expert, and and that's what what people can do, and so using those signs and symptoms that you you mentioned, hunger is a is a great one. Um, satiety is is a, a very good one. Uh, fatigue is, is you know they're all tied together. So if you just use hunger, satiety, uh, cravings might might be thrown in there too, uh, and energy. Um, you know, these are just, uh, you know, looking at the, the most common complaints that health practitioners hear from, from individuals, uh, fatigue is, is always up, ranks up there high up on the list, if not number one, mm. um, hunger is a very common one. So take these, uh, these, these symptoms and if you're the kind of person who has, uh, progressed to, uh, you know, developed other problems like hypertension, for example. Now you have a sign that you could easily measure as well. Mm. And I, I developed something called the two-week test many years ago. And basically, it's a, it's a two-week period where you reduce your uh, moderate and high glycemic foods. You eliminate all junk food. You reduce a lot of other carbohydrates, and you write down your signs and symptoms: uh, hunger, uh, cravings, fatigue, uh, sleeping. Uh, you write down any other abnormalities. High blood pressure uh, is a good one uh, that most people can measure at home. 
And um, over the two-week period, you, you monitor those signs and symptoms. And as you reduce your insulin because you've cut back on your carbohydrate intake, many of those signs and symptoms disappear. Mm, uh, in, in fact, the, the blood pressure, you know, I, I often have to give um, some cautionary uh, advice when people do the two-week test because if they're on medication, for example, for their blood pressure, it's possible their blood pressure can come down so well, so quickly that it normalizes. I've seen that a lot. And now you've got normal blood pressure, but you're still on medication. And you could go into a state of hypotension, which is very real and very serious. And so you've got to be very, very careful there. The other, you know, you mentioned hormones uh, earlier. The other thing that, that can happen in the two-week test, and I, I discovered this um, with a patient uh, by accident, sort of, um, in a funny way, um, is that this this uh, woman um, went on the two-week test and became pregnant. Not because of the two-week test. But her, <laughs> Where are you going with this, Phil? Her and her husband had been trying to... to um, uh, Conceive. Uh, mm conceived for, I, I want to say, 10 years or 12 years. And they had been everywhere, and you know they, they didn't want to do the hormone treatment, so they really had given up. And she was 40 years old, and um, she did the two-week test. Well, it balanced all her hormones, and she became very fertile. And I thought, you know, that must be coincidence. Well, she recommended a couple of her infertile friends who did the two-week test, and they got pregnant. And I thought, this is not just coincidence. And I, you know, after doing some research, um, all you have to do is look at the sex hormones and it's the relationship of, of cortisol and insulin and all of this stuff. Well, it's easy to see that the hormones of the body, among the many other things, uh, balance out and you end up with a healthier uh, hormonal system and things work when your hormones get balanced. So, um, you know, the two-week test is an interesting thing, but it's it's a um, it, it's a way for people to take charge of of their nutrition. Yeah, I think, and this is exactly why it cannot be reduced to a mathematical equation. The human body is so complex, and there's a huge uh, degree of physiology behind being healthy. And exactly. I think you know, it's great to see the conversation being had and certainly I know last year the even the US government have said that they believe there's no evidence of um, cholesterol being unhealthy you can eat things like eggs now which is fantastic to see and they're certainly encouraging people to optimize types of dietary fat and not reducing total fat so mm-hmm. we're finally seeing uh, a trend in the right direction. It, it, and it's been a long time coming. Um, I, I don't remember when I first learned ab- about the history of uh, fat mm. and, and the research of it, but the essentiality of fat, which is why we don't want to eat a low-fat diet because fats are essential nutrients. The essentiality of fats uh, was discovered in 1929. So it, it's, it's been a while, um, and it's strictly, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the reason we've had the low-fat trend has strictly been a commercial reason, and the reason that the governments have recommended low-fat and, and scared people to death with, with fat, especially cholesterol, is because of the lobbyists that um, hang around the politicians and say, well, you know, I represent the sugar company and we want people eating cornflakes or sugar frosted flakes for breakfast uh, and not, not a vegetable omelet because we all know that, you know, that egg yolk is going to kill you. (laughs) So I think, you know, and I read recently where there, there were, and this was, this, this was a stat from, uh, 2010, so it's probably quite outdated, but they, they said there were 15,000 
lobbyists in Washington. Um, and I mean, that's over a billion dollars a year just to keep those people there. Um, couldn't we use that money for something of value? Anyway, that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think there's two words, vested interest, and that's certainly yep. a lot, uh, a big part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to what you were saying earlier about avoiding following dietary guidelines, and that's certainly what your article, uh, Death by Dietary Guidelines, would indicate. Um, right. Take us through the the flow. I'm sorry to make you relive it. I know you said it was quite <laughs> horrific. <laughs> but just to teach our listeners a little bit about what the the year would look like. And we, we've seen films like Super Size Me, um, which was released, we know, in um, 2004. But take us through what your experience would be um, if you were to follow the, the dietary guidelines in the mm-hmm. U.S. Yeah, and, and the idea came from the Super Size Me, mm. uh, uh, which I didn't see um, by the way, but I, I you know, I, I heard about it and I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, and that was only a one month period. Um, yes, correct. And, and I thought, well, a, a lot of bad things could happen to people like me in a month. Um, and I thought, well, what would happen in, in a year? Mm. And, um, and then I had this crazy idea that, well, gee, if I did this, um, it would it would get a lot of interest. And uh, oh, if you actually I, did it, if I if I actually did it, it could, <laughs> maybe I could actually win an award and you know, like a movie, <laughs> uh, like a movie. Um, but you know, it and I and it was I, I had fun kind of thinking about this, mm. and um, but then when I started writing it down. The, you know, what I had to do was think about who I was, what was my health and fitness history, and knowing someone's history, you can kind of predict where their body will go if you do things unhealthy. Um, there are certain patterns you see in patients, and that's, that's not a difficult prediction to make uh, w- with, with accuracy. So I really, I really kind of play the role of both doctor and patient. And, and as I was do, I mean, I had to think about the details of things I hadn't thought about in a long, long time. You know, what were the health problems I had when I was a kid? And um, as I was, you know, before I became natural orient, oriented in my, in my approach to uh, lifestyle. And I, so I had to go back and think about all these things. And <laughs> it was it was painful, but I, you know, one of the things that I realized is that as I, if I was going to do this, which I really never intended on doing it, but if I did, the first thing that would happen is I would begin to get addicted to carbohydrates again. Absolutely. Mm. And just literally just a few meals, um, and I would start liking the taste of, of carbohydrates, um, I I probably was addicted to carbohydrates within a few days of life. I certainly um, wasn't fed properly. I had I had formula feeding from day one, right. and it wouldn't wouldn't have taken long. Um, and getting off the sugar later on in life, when I realized that this stuff is really bad, was a terrible uh, uh, process. It was painful. It was. Um, it, it reminded me of the process uh, that that I watched patients go through who were addicted to cocaine and heroin and and certainly cigarettes. You know the the addictions have they can be quite difficult to say the least. So um, I had to do the reverse, and and I thought, well, probably the first thing that would happen is I'd start craving more carbohydrates, and I kind of went from there, and my my uh, blood pressure would have gone up within a month or two. My blood sugar and insulin would have been uh, uh, measurably affected in a in a very negative way. Um, I would have been I would have become depressed if if just looking at risk factors. I would have gone from the lowest uh, 
chronic disease risk factor to the highest within the year, uh, if not if not long before the year was up. Um, so it, it it was uh, you know um, it was a terrible thing to think about. But you know the fact is this goes on all the time. We've got five, ten year olds, fifteen, twenty year olds, thirty year olds, forty year olds who are living this kind of comical thing that I wrote about, but it, it has a very serious component to it in that many people in the world are literally going through the same thing every day. Yeah, I think that's so true. Like you and I might not be exposed to it as much as some people are, but I wanted to make the point that you mentioned in the article under the, the one year. Um, time frame um some of the points that you have mentioned certainly refer to uh feelings of depression um and i was having a conversation with a client yesterday who's made some fantastic changes over the last year and he had caught up with an old friend who he hadn't seen for two years and it turned out this guy had been you know basically isolating himself because he has been feeling really depressed for the last two years um Following a conventional diet has little knowledge on real food and, and how to make some changes. But I just thought it was so interesting that people are still caught up in following either the government guidelines and or eating far too much junk. And we are still losing sight of the, the way nutrition and, and wellness can be the treatment for these sorts of conditions. Right, right. Yeah, and they're put on medication and they're yeah. and they're sent to therapy and... and you know, symptom treatment is is the the name of the game in healthcare, mm. and peop, mm. you know most people are you know their symptoms are treated and the causes are not. Um, it's yeah, you you make a good point. Um, mm. I, I don't hang around. I, I don't hang around anybody that's not health oriented. I, yeah, I, I was going to say even even when I go in the studio to record music, the the musicians, um, most of the time, uh, at least that I work with, are people that I, people that are living a healthy lifestyle. They're often people that I've helped get into that healthy lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and you forget sometimes how how bad it is out there, out there in the in the world, mm. and it's the majority of people. Um, when you when you mention things like uh, most chronic disease is preventable, uh, a lot of people get mad and they say, "What do you What do you mean? It's, you know, I had a heart attack. I I, I didn't. You know, my my cholesterol levels were normal, um, so I had a heart attack. It must be genetic, or it must be, um, you know, because I hate my mother, or whatever." <laughs> um, well, it is preventable. It's considered a preventable disease. And most of these chronic diseases are preventable. If we take out all the genetic-related conditions and the traumas, um, we're still left with the majority of, of, uh, of chronic uh, disease, you know, Alzheimer's and diabetes and on and on and on. And um, I don't know if you have the same thing in Australia, but in the U.S. Uh, and I think in England and other places, uh, when you when you look at some of the the drugs, the drug ads, some of the even the over over the counter drugs, um, it'll say you know this this medication should be used in conjunction with a healthy lifestyle, and. <laughs> Right. I, I just have to. I have to laugh when I see that, and um, you know, my image is that that some uh, uninformed doctor is saying to their patient, uh, "Oh, and by the way, uh, follow a healthy lifestyle." You know, the the we all have we meaning me and you and people who are helping others get to that healthy lifestyle. We all have a, a very important job to do we all have a passion to do it and uh we want to help people and um it's really quite simple we just have to get around the 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 stress that people have about 
the past, like the, the whole low-fat thing that we talked about earlier. Mm. People have this image of fat, that it's high calories, it's bad, uh, it's going to cause me to gain weight. And you, you, know, you can rationalize it with them, and, um, but it's still there. And, and, uh, but we, we do our best and we help a lot of people and it's really wonderful. But the numbers of people out there who have become healthier as, as a result of, like you say, the last five years there's been an explosion in healthy eating because we've gotten rid of some of these old worn out things that don't apply. But the amount of people who don't do that and the amount of people who are still sick and getting sicker are the majority. And that's really sad. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I will, you know, reiterate what you said about we forget. We we do forget. And so these conversations that I have with clients or people that are probably outside my social circle, I am reminded of how the the how great the imbalance is, I guess, to people that are eating well mm-hmm. and and not relying on pharmaceuticals versus the opposite. And it really comes back to um, I wanted to talk more about insulin resistance actually because in Australia certainly we see the advice from diabetes educators including an abundance of carbohydrates with every meal and then Mm -hmm. the prescription of insulin on top of that uh, which is just a very sad case of irony and I've had some great conversations lately with um, certainly families with maybe a child that's been diagnosed with diabetes and a a mum who has empowered herself with knowledge and I guess essentially gone against the advice of the diabetes educator but completely overhauled the health and significantly reduced, if not removed, the need for pharmaceutical intervention via insulin. Mm-hmm. And I just thought we exactly. get some comments and, from you on that. Well, you know, it's, it, it comes up a lot, the issue of uh, uh, a type 2 diabetic who is on insulin. Um, uh, you know, they're on insulin because they're on carbohydrates. Yeah. Uh, in, in reality, yes, the, 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 the pancreas was overproducing insulin for so long that it eventually burned out. Uh, can, can the insulin-producing uh, component of the pancreas return if you reduce your carbohydrates? Well, I can't even count the number of patients who I've been able to help uh, eliminate insulin, um, the type 2 diabetics. Does it happen in type 1? I have seen it, uh, and I've seen case histories published about type 1 diabetics who were able to eliminate insulin. I can't explain the physiology behind it. I don't care what the physiology is. Um, I'm interested in the patient's welfare, and if, if, a, a, um, a, you know, if, if a 12-year-old child reduces their carbohydrate intake and maybe is on a ketogenic eating plan, and it leads to them not requiring any more insulin, uh, that's great. That, that's the bottom line. Um, but there are certainly published uh, studies that show that. So um, it's like other medications, and with, with insulin, it's easy to check uh, even meal by meal, um, hour by hour if you need to, but it's easy to check on your body's status. How am I doing right now? And, um, that makes it easy. Same with blood pressure. You can check your blood pressure as often as you want to monitor, uh, monitor that blood pressure based on the interventions you're making with diet. And, and if you're going the right way, you'll see that blood pressure come down. And when you do, you have to lower your medication um, or get your doctor to help you reduce the medication uh, because you may not need it anymore. It's really as simple as that. Yeah, and it is simple when we speak about it like that, but it's almost like pharmaceuticals are given as you need this today and you need it every day forever with not right. much um, room to adjust, which I think is just ridiculous because, as you say, you see people that get um, healthy and they end up sort of almost staying unhealthy at maybe the opposite end because of the effect of the of the pharmaceuticals, which maybe haven't been adjusted to their new exactly. state. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. People don't die of diabetes; they die of the side effects of insulin. Yeah. And so um, there's something wrong with that picture. Oh, absolutely. 
And, yes. and I'll tell you, um, you know, this discussion I have had my whole career, <laughs> it's a lot easier today, but not a lot, uh, not as much as I'd like, but a lot easier certainly than even 10 years ago where um, you couldn't have the discussion because it would often be interrupted with, I'm going to report you to the authorities. You know, this was like an unethical thing that you were recommending that a diabetic is going to eat less carbohydrates than the the diet the the um, the diabetes association recommends. And 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 gee, you mean you're going to lower the insulin uh, dosage based on? You know, it's just. It, it, I tell you, one of the things that's happening that will help this a lot is the. Uh, what what Dr. Tim Noakes is going through? Yeah, I was just South thinking Africa. the same thing. <laughs> uh, he he had the he had the opportunity to make all of that go away, but he said no no we're going to go through with this um um what is it so it's not really a trial it's a, it's a hearing uh, it's a hearing mm. and it's the uh, and I'm not up on this uh, re- real well I've talked to Tim about it but um it it's the it's the the um, it's not the diabetes association, is it? It's the it's the dietitians. Yeah, I, well, I believe. actually, well, how it's interestingly how it started was with a conversation over Twitter. So he advised a mother to wean her child on low carb carb high fat, essentially real food, right? Um, and a Twitter conversation led to a complaint being lodged by the Association for Dietetics in South Africa. So you're right; it is against dietitians. Yeah, mm. and I think what what it's done is it's brought out a lot of, um, a lot of discussions about mm. these issues, and the reporting is, uh, be, you know, it's become a worldwide thing, and it's it's been it's been interesting. Gosh, how could how could um, uh, how could a healthcare professional possibly recommend that you give a young baby cereal as as their first food i know at six months yeah Mm, when they haven't even got the enzymes in their pancreas to digest the carbohydrates it's it's absolutely absurd Mm. in fact the the carbohydrates are the last thing on the list Uh, you know i've written a, a lot about this and and i make a list of you know starting them with vegetables and meats and fats and 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 then grains are like at the you know after months of giving your baby foods very carefully, fresh, healthy foods, uh, the last thing you try are some type of healthy, you know, whole grain, nothing refined. Uh, yeah, because I, I think that should may be or may not. Yeah, they, it, they may or may not tolerate. You know, um, children are the, the, the fastest growing group of um, obesity uh, mm. patients. Uh, so, you know, there, there's obviously a big problem in that. That doesn't seem to be stopping too soon either. Yeah, but the, the common denominator in lots of our topics today is that there's a problem with the guidelines. You see rice cereal being recommended five or six months when it should be well after a year. And, you know, babies need fats and proteins and they're just being fed carbohydrates. It doesn't make any sense. They're growing. <laughs> yeah. They need fats yeah. and proteins to make that happen. It's- Mm. Exactly, and if you look at the content of breast milk, that's mm. that's a good guideline. Um, there's not a lot of carbohydrate in there. There's a lot of fat in there, uh, cholesterol and, and protein. But um, you know, as the baby develops and as their intestinal tract matures, they're able to digest more of these healthy foods, proteins, meats, and um, uh, and and fats, and the 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 brain is you know, 60 plus percent fat. And if you're not getting that in the diet, you're going to affect your brain in a, potentially in a, in a serious way. Yeah. I mean, it just makes so much sense, but I think I like what you mentioned about Tim Noakes. You, you know, he could have obviously put it away, but instead he's really going to strongly stand up to this so that we can continue to have the conversation about how we have been doing the wrong thing for so long. Uh, we know the hearing's been adjourned until sometime this year, I think in Feb. Right. But I, 
look forward to seeing what the outcome of that is. I think certainly um, he is making similar statements to you about how much good fats breast milk, breast milk has. So certainly you want to almost replicate that when they move on to real food. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, you know, he's done it in a way that's working. Um, it, it reminded me of, uh, I don't know when, it, it was maybe 1983 that the cholesterol thing was really peaking. It was like, you know, you, you, you run the risk of losing your license if you say to a patient, have two or three eggs every day, it's perfectly fine. Um, and that's what I did. And um, I thought, well, gee, to make a really big point and to get a lot of media attention, why don't I develop an egg carton and we can sell eggs and on the egg carton I'll print, these eggs don't raise cholesterol and they'll tell me I have to stop selling those eggs because it's not true. And I'll say, well, it is true. Prove, prove to me that, it's, that, that eating eggs raises cholesterol. And at the time, there was a lot of speculation, but there was also um, speculation that, it, that eating eggs didn't, didn't change your cholesterol. And um, I actually talked to a lawyer and said, well, what if I did this? What, you know, what could happen to me? And um, she said it would, you know, it, it would come from the USDA and it wouldn't, it wouldn't come down to whether eggs raised cholesterol or not. They would, they would, you know, they would get you on some other uh, technicality and it, it wouldn't well, be worth your while. That's actually <laughs> what's happening with Tim. So now yes. it's turning into he gave advice without knowing the case history type um, claim. Right, right, yep. So they're almost trying to, I guess, brush under the table the LCHF, the real food type conversation because, mm-hmm. come on, you can't argue that. And, in a, you know, in court they'll obviously be able to separate fact from fiction, I hope. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's similar here. They're turning it to be um, a, a different issue and still going ahead with the hearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he's, he's uh, he, you know, he's uh, – I, I want to say he's excited <laughs> uh, because it's really uh, it's spreading the word. I don't know if he would use the word exciting. I know he's very busy with it, and yeah. but he's he's also spending a lot of his own money, um, right. and so it's a it's a noble thing that he's doing. And Tim uh, has been I've been a big fan of Tim's since I first read his uh, very first published paper, which was about marathoners having having heart attacks yeah and um and unfortunately it took tim a while to realize that the carbohydrate problems were significant but he you know he's done so much work his entire career and um this is this is quite a noble thing for him yeah absolutely very interesting to follow very good. Okay. So last sort of topic I wanted to ask you about is um, just to finish up on the death by dietary guidelines topic, if we could just talk about um, the impact of stress and certainly um, stress hormones and what the impact is of uh, traditional food pyramid approach and also the impact of intestinal strength, uh, stress and then finally yep. a sort of more of a chronic stress type scenario. Yeah, you know, when you mention stress, the very first, this is another thing that we we've all been we've all been taught uh, and it's 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 unfortunate because it's not accurate, but when you mention stress, the first thing people think of is mental or emotional stress. Yeah. And I kind of combine them together, mental, emotional, being our behavioral characteristics. Um, but stress can be physical and stress can be chemical. And all the dietary things we've been talking about with uh, uh, eating in a way that causes insulin resistance, uh, which I just call carbohydrate intolerance, but um, all the, the problems with hunger and fatigue and 
uh, so on and so forth. That's an example of a, of a biochemical stress. Uh, physical stress, uh, of course, uh, sitting a lot, uh, having dental problems that you're neglecting, uh, wearing shoes that are too small, um, wearing uh, shoes that are just ridiculous for the feet. That would include um, the high heels that, that women uh, sometimes wear and men too. Um, and and the, the crazy, crazy uh, running shoes that they keep coming out with, these ridiculously thick-heeled shoes. So those are examples of physical stresses. And, of course, mental, emotional stresses are uh, the fear of eating fat, for example. Yeah. Uh, but education is a mental stress, too. If we're not educated about our diet and we don't, don't know what to do and, you know, that's a, another example. And stress is stress for the body, for the brain in particular. And when the brain is, is, um, is sensing stress, it responds by juggling the hormones around. It produces a lot of stress hormone. And if you continue producing stress hormone because you don't get rid of your stresses, then that high amount of stress hormone uh, impairs other hormone production uh, estrogens and, and testosterone, for example, will, will often go down when your stress hormone hangs around for a long time. We tend to increase uh, our amount of belly fat when that stress hormone, cortisol in particular, um, is, is too high. And so um, in the article, what was happening was I was... I was building up stress as the yeah. year went on, uh, hypothetically, and <laughs> that that physical, chemical, and mental stress contributed to everything from back pain and depression to low testosterone levels, which in in men and women, you know, risks um, bone fractures and uh, risks falling. When you fall and break your hip you're in serious trouble. It might seem like, okay, he broke a bone, it'll heal up. The mortality rate after five years is very high after after a broken hip. So we're talking about very serious things here, um, all coming from this one thing called stress. And again, just like uh, most chronic disease is preventable, most stress can be eliminated. We have to think about it. You know, we, we decide if we're going to sit at our desk all day versus uh, getting up and walking around. Uh, for example, if we get a phone call, we could just as easily pace back and forth if we're on a cell phone, for example, um, or go on speakerphone and just walk around the conference room table and talk on the phone. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways of getting rid of stress. Uh, the dietary changes that we've been talking about. Um, educating yourself about uh, not just diet, but educating yourself about what your particular body needs, uh, because that's really the bottom line. What does my body need? So stress is uh, stress can can uh, more than kill you. It could make your quality of life very low. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love everyone to check out that article because we won't um, actually encourage you to do it in real time. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not. Do it. I wouldn't even think about doing it no, because I it was quite stressful. Uh, but the article j actually just came out, I think, um, the other day. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really good just to read the progression of, of or regression, I should say, <laughs> throughout the year, hypothetically. Yeah. Absol absolutely. All right, Phil, it's been fantastic to chat to you again today. I'll, uh, again, pop the links to the articles in the show notes and also to your social media handles so everyone can check out what you're doing. And I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Steph. I appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this Wellness Catch podcast brought to you by Audible. Do you find that you just don't have time to read all the awesome books that you hear mentioned on the Wellness Couch? Well, Audible might just have the answer. Audible is offering the Wellness Couch listeners a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can get books like Eat Right for Your Blood Type, Why We Get Fat by Gary Torps, Paleo Diet for Athletes, or even The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. So to download your free audiobook today, go to 
audibletrial.com forward slash the wellness couch. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash the wellness couch for your free audiobook. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.